Hello, so it's Terry Shower, and I'm here with the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. This is our first launch edition of the podcast, so you're going to be able to catch it on all major platforms starting next week. And uh, today we have a live. So I'd like to first introduce my co-host, the president of the club, uh, Mr. Jean-Philippe Claude. Um, he's also just recently become uh, an author. So you can check out his new book, which if you read French is a, a good read. I uh, haven't gotten through it yet. I'm going to do that this next week. So we're your two co-hosts. And we have the pleasure today of hosting Mark Levy, CPA and tax specialist. And I've really been looking forward to this conversation because not only is Mark a specialist, he does a lot of business with real estate investors and small business, but um, Mark and I were also part of a uh, business networking group together a little while ago. And I found he always had some really uh, inspirational and pertinent stuff to say. So I'm very excited to have this one hour conversation with Mark today. And uh, so, hi, Mark, if you want to just introduce yourself to our listeners and uh, maybe just tell them what is your cup of tea in terms of your business and what's your, your experience. Good morning, everybody. Um, thank you for the very nice uh, introduction, Terry. It was always a pleasure, uh, you know, dealing with you in our, in our little group. And uh, it's always fun to, uh, to do these podcasts and to be able to share my experiences and my knowledge with, uh, with the public. So I'm uh, I'm a CPA, CAA. Uh, I'm a tax specialist. I've been doing this for about 20 years now. Uh, my practice allows me to have an association with many different kinds of business owners. Um, we deal with a lot of people investing in the U.S. It might be something of interest to your clients and all the compliance issues with the U.S. Uh, from a small business perspective, we have business owners that uh, own businesses that sell online, businesses that sell uh, brick and mortar. And I'd say about 20, maybe 25% of my business is dealing with real estate investors, uh, individuals uh, acquiring real estate in small groups and individually. It's been my experience that one of the biggest concerns is, okay, great, I'm going to buy real estate, I'm going to invest some money, I want to make some money, but how much tax is this going to cost me? And unfortunately, uh, the investors, if they're not aware of the pitfalls, they can end up finding themselves paying more tax than they should. And unfortunately, if there's a way around that, that's what I'm here to help. Okay, thank you. Um, so before I get you to just tell us a little bit about some of those pitfalls, I want us to start with perhaps like the major question that I get from people who are starting out in real estate. So I think a lot of the information that we have tells us that we need to incorporate and that the best way to buy real estate is through a structure of an incorporation. So in Canada, there's like specific laws governing that in terms of tax. Do you want to maybe just sort of speak to that question and, and tell our listeners, is incorporating for buying buildings a good idea? Why and why not? Absolutely. It's a great question. And I think I've been asked that question, oh, at least once or twice over the last 20 years. So there's no absolute answer for every single investor. I can't tell you every single time you should incorporate or every single time you should not. It's really case by case. And it's even case by case within an investor. So somebody may come to me and say, you know, I've got a bunch of duplexes and I'm thinking of acquiring a 16 plex. Should I incorporate? Now, because the risk has now changed because they're maybe not familiar with a 16 plex or maybe it's in an area of the city, which is perhaps different from what they're used to, there may be a need to incorporate simply to protect this person's net assets. The biggest game changer is when you get involved in real estate and you start to make acquisitions and assume risk, you do not want to allow your entire portfolio to be seizable in the event that something goes awry. So that's where a corporation is of paramount importance. So from a liability protection perspective, every lawyer will tell you, absolutely incorporate, incorporate every single property you have incorporate in different corporations because that way your risk is separated amongst the different properties but from a practical perspective especially when investors are starting off there's always a cost benefit analysis so somebody comes to me and says i'm buying the condo my first condo should i incorporate well you'll have to spend between a thousand and fifteen hundred dollars to incorporate you'll have to prepare financial statements for that corporation you'll have to do a certain accounting for the corporation so these all you know, uh, result in costs that maybe that investor is not ready to go into. So when a person comes to me with that situation, I'll say, you know something, it's your first property. Why don't we not incorporate, own it in your own name, and don't worry, 
we can always incorporate later and transfer that property in. And that's a crucial point that many investors are not aware of. Um, you we can always, from a tax perspective, improve the situation later on down the road. So it's not like day one, well, you need your, your operating company and you need a holding company and you need a trust and you need all of these vehicles, each of which have uh, a purpose, but you don't need them on day one. We can slowly build up to that and do it on, in a tax advantageous way, whereby if down the road we decide to take this one, two, three or more properties that you own personally and transfer them to a trust, or transfer them to well, more to a corporation, we can do that on a tax deferred basis. It's something we do regularly for investors. Uh, also, one of the things to consider is when this property will first be acquired, is it going to generate from an accounting and tax point of view, losses or gains? And that's crucial because in case you're not aware, if you're generating losses from real estate, you're entitled to offset these losses against your normal income, whether it's employment or business or whatever. So it may be to your advantage not to incorporate if you know walking in that you're going to be generating paper losses. What's a paper loss? It's not a cash flow loss. It doesn't mean you're actually spending more than you're bringing in in revenues. What it means is through certain deductions like depreciation and so forth, you have a loss on paper, but your cash flow may be positive. So that's something that before I would answer a question of whether you should incorporate or not, I would sit with a client and say, let's look at the specific situation, your particular situation, and see what's best for you right now. Alternatively, we also take a look and say, who should own the property? If you're more than one individual, is it, does it make sense to own the property 50-50 or does it make sense to own the property a different percentage, especially between spouses where perhaps the income is not at the same level? We can get more sophisticated by looking at the bare ownership and the use of fruct of a property, which means one of the partners or more of the partner or more can own the property, yet all the revenues and expenses are attributed to another partner because the use of fruct, uh, you know, the use of the property is associated to that person. So these are complex um, terms that we can implement into a contract, all with a tax motivated perspective to make sure that at the end of the day, we're paying the least amount of tax possible. Mark, uh, can I add something on that? Uh, sure. First of all, very interesting because there is always the fight between the accountant view and the lawyer view. The lawyer view says like you should protect every single building in the different company. And then there's the accountant that says, well, it's going to cost you a lot of money to maintain this, this structure. So very interesting point. Um, question, when you roll out from a personal ownership to a company ownership, you're in the chain of title. So I guess you're not protected any against uh, hidden defects after the sale. Is, is that correct? I know I'm going into more a lawyer view, but uh, since you're in the chain of title, that change would be tax wise, not legal wise. Am I correct, Mark? Yeah. So, so I don't know if you can hear me at the same time. Okay. So, the question is actually a great question because it means from a tax perspective, how is this transferred to a corporation that you own seen? Legally, it's a sale. You're going to the notary, you're affecting whatever documents you need, and the ownership is transferred. The only twist is that from a tax perspective, we're doing it in a non-taxable manner by exchanging shares and by doing certain things. So getting back to your, your idea of uh, your concept of uh, you know at least cachet or something, just like any prior owner would be responsible, I I believe, I'm not a lawyer, and I've never looked at this in the law, but I believe that that would apply in your case as well. And just by transferring something to a corporation, it would not absolve you from anything that might affect you prior to that transfer. Exactly. Now, this is why, these are the conversations we have. So this is why when you first create the company, uh, the, the when you first make the acquisition, you need to factor all of these decisions in, in, in deciding, should I acquire it via corporation or personally? If financial is not a factor, then of course, go through a corporate route. And of course, if financial is never a factor, then yes, have a corporation for every single property that you purchase. Mm -hmm. But practically speaking, you need to assess what is the real benefit of that in terms of the risk of me being sued or having a problem or having an issue. If it's highly unlikely, you can still do it if the finances don't you know, prohibit that, but it's not absolutely necessary. Uh, I could 
help structure a transaction which is very complex with many different moving parts to give the Rolls Royce of you know real estate setups. And I can give something that's very, very basic, you know, your generic car. Both could work equally well depending on the situation. So I I I I hesitate to ever give a blanket answer and tell somebody just do it one way. One thing people should know about incorporation, and it's actually you know a surprise to people, is that incorporating a company to own real estate is not a tax advantage. You are not paying less tax by having the real estate owned by the corporation. In fact, you're paying a higher level of tax. The tax rate on rental income, the net prop, net income after expenses, is actually 49% on every dollar you earn. So this shocks people because they always hear, oh, corporations pay low tax rates, 15, 16, 18% and so forth. But that's what, what's called active business income. You know, if I open up a, a retail store, yes, that's an active business. Real estate is considered by definition passive income. And that means that it's investment income, it's taxed at a much higher rate. But young somebody will ask me, well, that doesn't make sense. What if I have, you know, uh, you know, thousand doors and a lot of buildings, it takes a lot of time. So the law allows that once you get large enough that you need to have full-time employees, a minimum of five, or actually the law says more than five, so let's just say six, working for you, you're now going to redefine the income as active because it takes a significant amount of work. But like I tell clients, the the, uh, the Revenue Quebec, and there's been a lot of legislation on this, it's not like because you own a condo or two that you can hire your mother, your grandmother, your uncle, and pay them a minimum wage and get the lower tax rate. There has to be a real need. So the rule is, it's a rule of thumb. If you don't have about a couple of hundred doors, you don't really need five people or six people working for you. But it's something we factor in. That being said, just because the corporation has a higher tax rate doesn't mean we can't structure things so that the corporation that owns the property doesn't make any profit and we create another corporation which would be a management company for that property where all the profit will be generated and that company would qualify as an active business because it's engaging in property management which is not passive income. So as you can see the rules are very intricate and it's really important that Anybody that acquires real estate doesn't just go to their local bookkeeper and say, oh, here you go. Can you just, you know, do my taxes? Anybody could put numbers on a tax return. The, the skill comes from understanding how do you structure something to make sure that the end result is as favorable to you as possible. And this is where a tax specialist, a CPA who has years of experience can actually be of mutual benefit. When clients come to see me and they say, well, what are you going to do by doing my taxes? I can do it myself. I realize they've misunderstood the role that I'm assuming. I'm not, you know, putting numbers on a piece of paper or in a software. It's all about how to structure this so that when they acquire the property during the period, of, you know, that they detain the property and at the selling point that the absolute tax that they pay is the lowest tax. And even in terms of selling a the property, there's certain strategies over there. And, you know, if we want to discuss this a little later on today, we can, but it's not always advisable to sell a property, especially if you want to reacquire another property, because unfortunately, the way the Tax Act is written today, you have to pay tax on that sale, even if you're going to reinvest all the profits. So refinancing is a much more advantageous strategy if that's your purpose, because you're not paying tax on refinancing. And then that way you, you build a, a wealth of real estate, you build a portfolio, and then down the road, if you decide to sell that, there's strategies to try to sell it in a tax advantageous manner. Mark, don't 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 say don't say that uh, uh, too loud because we want to buy buildings. So please sell <laughs> the buildings. We want to buy some. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. For, your, for, your, for your club over here, it's interesting because you guys will teach them the proper for the club. It's interesting because you'll teach them the proper strategies. To maximize their situation but absolutely yeah 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 so i think uh mark like that was some really uh, great advice there and i think you know the, the corporation question so just to sort of resume what you said because there was a lot of great info in there so one aspect is the risk aspect then there's uh potential capital gains issues with which if you use a corporation or not there's some slightly different laws i think and then there's also the tax rate because and i think this is where a lot of um 
more neophyte investors get a bit caught up. I know I made this mistake at one point, which is that the once you you have assets in a hold co, you're actually paying like that default rate of 49% on any profits you make. Whereas if your personal tax rate is lower, it might actually be more advantageous from a tax point of view to own it personally. So yeah, thanks for that uh, good information. All right, I, uh, I got a question for Mark, uh, if I can, uh, while we're scrolling down our question. The second question, Mark, after having ownership under a company or under ownership under a, a personal name, should we amortize our assets or not? <laughs> That's the second question. All right, Mark. Jean-Philippe, you just asked, you know, the million dollar question. Uh, if I, I, I don't think a week has gone by where somebody hasn't asked me this question. So there it's the, the, the right answer is amortize every single time. But that's not the right answer for everybody. From so from a mathematical perspective and using statistics and the time value of money, if you're planning to hold on to a property five years, 10 years, 20 years, the deduction you get today of let's just say, you know, ten thousand dollars is worth more to you than ten thousand dollars in the future. Oh. Because down the road money money is worth less as inflation erodes the value of money. Totally agree. Yep. Go so on. If I can take $10,000 deduction today and 10 years later, I have to add that 10,000 back into my income. When I recapture that depreciation at the moment of sale, that 10,000 should be worth more to me today. So I should do it. That's just the mathematics of it. Uh, but however, a lot of people don't like that concept. They don't want to find themselves when they sell the property owing more tax than they expect. So in general, when people say, well, how much tax do I have to pay when I sell a property? What's the capital gains tax? The rule of thumb, the fat, fast answer is 25% of the gain. It might be a little bit less, it won't be more, plus the recapture. Now the recapture is ordinary income and depending on their tax rate, it could be 53%. So people don't like the idea that, oh, I'm selling my real estate and now I'm left with less than half at the end of the day because I have to give money to the government. But what they fail to understand is through the years that they didn't depreciate that property or they depreciate that property, they got a tax deduction. So they were saving tax each year. So sometimes I tell my clients, why don't you take that tax you save and throw it into a savings account? And then when you sell the property and you have to pay the extra tax, you'll see you have the money. Nobody really does that, but you, you get the point. But what's really important is to look at what is that deduction worth today versus what is that income going to be worth down the road? So if you're making $20,000 a year and you've managed to invest and you're going to take a deduction off your real estate. Well, your tax rate isn't very high. So that $10,000, let's just say for argument's sake, on $20,000, you pay 15% income tax. That $10,000 is only worth $1,500 tax savings. Versus if you're a professional or somebody who makes an income that's significantly more, let's just say $250,000, and they're paying at an income at that level and above 53% income tax, well, that $10,000 is worth $5,300 deduction. So again, it's du cas par cas, we say, if nothing is absolute, but it's definitely something not to categorically reject and say, well, that depreciation is not for me. I don't believe in that. No, let's look at your situation and let's see if depreciation makes sense, especially in years where your income is going to be high. One of the key questions I always ask my clients whenever they're doing any real estate is, is your income stable year to year or you have years where you have higher income than not? Uh, a lot of people in sales, for example, their income is not stable. So that's something we have to factor in. And it's a completely off topic and I'm not going to go into that. But even when contributing to an RRSP, that's something you have to factor in. Do you deduct that RRSP when your income's 30,000 or do you save it up to deduct it when your income's 100,000? So again, it's, it's case by case. It's an expectation of where you're going to be 10 years down the road. Somebody who for reasons, uh, you know, for whatever reasons are pigeonholed in an income bracket because of what they do and so forth, their income will always be, let's say, forty dollars to $60,000. It's not really going to move year to year. Well, a person like that in an RSP situation, I'll say, well, contribute because there isn't a benefit of waiting. But somebody who says, oh, I just started in, um, let's just say, real estate as a real estate agent. Well, we understand the first couple of years, you may not make so much money, but if you keep at it and you, and you work hard at it, Conceivably, you should make a lot more money down the road, and for you, it might be worth more. 
depreciation is the same thing. We will look at that and say, what's that deduction worth today versus if we save it down the road? One important thing to know about depreciation from a Canadian tax perspective, because in the U.S. the rules are completely different, and a lot of Canadians, if they buy in the U.S., get caught by these rules, and uh, we can talk about it today or another day, but they get penalized with almost a double taxation because they weren't aware that it's not the same tax regime. But in Canada today, you cannot create a loss from rental income with depreciation. So you can bring the net profit to zero with depreciation, but not minus. In the U.S., it's different. You can create losses with, with, with depreciation, which could be very advantageous. So that's something we would look at as well, because the question there is going to be, okay, what about the, if I don't need the depreciation because I'm already at zero, should I capitalize some repair costs to take advantage of this depreciation or not and have a higher cost basis in this property down the road so when I sell it, I'll pay less income tax? Again, it's something we would have to look at specifically. There's no general rule for this, and it also depends on the nature of the repairs and maintenance that were uh, you know, take, undertaken by the, uh, the owner. Can we, uh, Mark, can we create losses with uh, depreciation uh, within a company? Uh, personal and company, are they different? So the rules on depreciation are the same. Um, you're not creating losses with depreciation. What's interesting, though, is if you own multiple properties, you can pick and choose. Uh, in general, you have about a 4% deduction on uh, the capital cost of the non-land portion of your real estate. So, you know, the building portion. So it, so it, let's just say you have you know three properties and they're a million dollars each and four percent would be forty thousand each, but you only need sixty thousand to create to bring your your rental income to zero. You can pick and choose which ones to take. So if you know you're going to be selling one property in the near future, well we're not going to take depreciation on that one. We'll choose the one that you think you're going to hold on for twenty years because that's the one you want to leave to your ch children. We'll take the full depreciation on that and maybe we'll take a lesser depreciation on another one. So there is some strategy planning over there, but we can't use real estate to create losses with depreciation. With mortgage interest, property taxes, repairs and so forth, yes, it happens all the time. And there's tax strategies with respect to that to be able to use those losses to offset other types of income, whether that income is in the corporation or whether you have it personally. One last point. Uh, one last uh, point before I leave uh, to you, uh, Terry. I'm, I'm, when people are asking, should I take amortization? Let's say within a company, personal is different. Within a company, your 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 tax bracket's not going to change, right? So the the, the company is always going to stay the same. So I'm asking, would you take a loan from the government at zero percent interest? It's it's that's basically it. So that's what you're doing with amortization. You're taking actually a loan at zero percent interest, but the money you need to repay when you're going to sell. So within a company, that, that's just amortized all the time. It says 0% interest loan. So that's what I say to people. So uh, <laughs> back to you, Terry. Uh, okay. Well, Mark, thanks. I think that's some really good info there. And I think those are the two most common questions maybe that people ask uh, me and Jean-Philippe. I wonder, is there anything else that we're forgetting? Like if, let's say I'm a, a neophyte real estate investor and I want to know what are the main balls that I need to keep my eye on from a fiscal perspective? Besides the two issues we just talked about, is there something else I should be worrying about? I mean, from a fiscal perspective, of course, there is how much income tax am I paying? Uh, because, and this is something that perhaps individuals who aren't familiar with corporate uh, environment, as uh, Jean-Philippe mentioned before, a corporation does, is not subject to what we call marginal tax rates. It is because the first half, well, if it qualifies, I mean, usually real estate companies don't qualify, but uh, management companies would. If it, if it's on the first half a million dollars, it has a flat tax rate, and above that, it has another tax rate. As an individual, it's all about marginal brackets. It's all about can I get myself in a lower bracket and not defer tax, but actually save tax. And real estate is a fantastic way to create that. When you invest in real estate, initially, you're, I mean, unless you find this fantastic deal, from a tax perspective, you should not be generating a profit. You should be, worst case scenario, tax neutral. And depending on this, the, the property you found and the amount of renovations required, you might even be in a cash negative situation which most real estate investors will tell you, no, no, don't touch that property. That's crazy because, you know, you have to be cash, po cash positive. But again, as you get very sophisticated, 
it may be to your advantage because you're in such a high tax bracket. Somebody in a 53% tax bracket who can create a loss in a property and save 53% income tax on that loss, they may want to do this because down the road, this prop when this property starts making money, it could be either transferred to a corporation and we can do something there to reduce the tax rate below, well, anyway, 53 to 49 is something, but even below 49, or it could be structured in such a way to transfer it. So for example, this is something that the law allows. Transfers between spouses are deemed to be a cost basis. So imagine a situation where somebody acquires a property when it's generating losses, and the moment that property starts to generate income and it's being taxed at a high rate, it's transferred to the lower income earning spouse legally through a notary, making uh, taking full advantage of all of the income tax uh, applications that are available. And now the revenue is being taxed at a lower tax rate. Something interesting to think about, of course, if the revenue at the end of the year is insignificant, two, three thousand dollars of profit, we don't care really if you're going to have a five, six, seven, eight percent tax differential because, you know, six percent of a thousand dollars is nothing. So that's why I say there's no hard, fast rule. It's really case by case. And it, it depends on how much money you're gonna make. And once we look at the cost of transferring something to a spouse, a notary and so forth, is it worth it? It's been my experience in 20 years, the tax is always a cost benefit. It's always about, um, you know, how much is this gonna cost me? One thing we didn't touch on before, which when we deal with corporations, and I think it's crucial is where is the source of the funds for the down payment? So if you have a corporation, whether it's a, uh, an operating business where you've accumulated income or a holding company, or even a corporation that has real estate, if the funds for that down payment is in the corporate vehicle, then my answer more often than not is make the next acquisition in that corporation or in a different corporation. Because if you make it in your personal name and you take those funds out of the company, you fall under the shareholder advances laws, which basically say any money you advance from the corporation, there are exceptions if you wanna buy a car for your use at work or a house for your personal use, there are exceptions. But in general, any money you take out of a corporation by a shareholder has to be reimbursed to the shareholder within two balance sheet dates. So it's to your disadvantage to acquire it personally and to put some numbers into the perspective. Let's say you have $300,000 in the corporation and you're buying a property and you want to put down $300,000 in down payment. Well, if you took it out of the corporation, more or less, you'd be taxed around 50% on that when you, if you didn't put it back. So you'd be paying $150,000 in tax on that versus if you left it in the corporation and the corporation acquired that property and put the $300,000 down, or if you made a loan corporation to a new corporation that owns this real estate, which you can do, well, you don't have to pay that tax because it never, cross the barrier of corporate to personal. That's a super important issue. So every single client that comes to me and asks me about real estate, my, one of my first questions is, where's the money for the down payment? If it's personal money, we can then decide to move it into a corporation and buy through the corporation if it makes sense. But if it's corporate money, I'd say eight out of 10 times or nine out of 10 times, I'm gonna tell them, make the acquisition through the corporation. It's crazy to pay income tax if you don't have to. Okay, I think that's a really, uh, really good point. Um, so I'm going to just uh, switch gears a little bit and ask uh, the, the the question that we asked all our guests in the midst of the COVID crisis. So I think we've seen a lot of disruptions, let's say, to the way um, that we've done things. And I think in the real estate industry and then in small business more generally, I think we're all trying to take the pulse of which direction things are going to go and what kind of disruptions are permanent, which ones are behind us. So I think with your clients in small business and in real estate, you have a kind of a visibility of how people are coping and uh, what kind of issues we're facing, what kind of stuff's going on. So I don't know if you could speak a little bit to what sort of disruptions you think are behind us and what's likely ahead of us in terms of disruptions to <coughs> market cycles or the way the way we do business. Sure, absolutely. Um, as I said, I can speak to it with a real estate view as well as just to a business view. None of us have a crystal ball, so we don't know what's going to come in the next you know, few months or a year and so forth. But I think one thing that most of us can, can, can agree on is that 
the COVID uh, situation is here to stay, at least in the short term, whether that means six months, a year, two years, I don't know, but I would say at least until the end of 2021. Businesses have fundamentally changed. And one of the most important impacts this has had on our society is that the wealth distribution, the range has expanded exponentially. Um, there's always been people with less money, people middle class, people with a lot of money, but that range has just ended up with people in the extremes. The people that had little money, who perhaps were working an hourly job or perhaps were working at minimum wage or, or something close to that, this has been catastrophic to them because they've lost their jobs, many of them, especially in the restaurant industry and in the entertainment industry. And we're not sure when they're going to be able to get back onto their feet. At the same time, certain people were not affected at all, whether they're professionals who are making a lot of money or individuals who, for whatever reason, their business wasn't affected by the crisis and the lockdowns. So what I'm seeing right now is that people who are making money are making a lot more money and people who are not making money are making a lot less money. So what does that mean? In the real estate market, and again, this is more the club that you have and, and, and what you're teaching people, what I'm seeing is real estate is like flying off the shelf. There's, there isn't enough inventory and whatever's there is just you know being fought over, whether it's in a residential or whether it's in a multi-unit. The people that are acquiring the real estate, the mindset is I'm going to hold on to this real estate because I know then in a year, two years, three years, all of this will have been passed. And then there'll be a lot of foreign students coming back, a lot of foreign individuals investing, and I'll be well positioned to sell my real estate at a premium. And so we see this all the time. We see all the condos selling downtowns, condos selling on the island, and people are looking at that as an opportunity. That opportunity is not necessarily available to everybody because sometimes you have to have a buy and hold strategy, and it may be in a negative cash flow position, so you need to be able to hold that onto, onto that. Um, from, from multi-residential, uh, we're seeing a boom of multi-residential because I think from a, um, an investment perspective, a lot of us have realized that people need a place to live. So whether you're looking at a high-end multi-residential multi or low-end or whatever, you pick the area, the, the, the market price that you want to get into, but everybody needs a place to live and that's not going to go away. So this is seen by a lot of people, and I see it amongst my clients, as a good place to invest money because, I mean, from the market perspective, the stock market, I don't understand what's going on. And most people I talk to don't understand. And people tend to shy away from that. From a business perspective, once again, businesses have fundamentally changed. So one of the things that's going on right now is the government aid. And there's two primary programs out there for businesses. Well, there's three, but anyway, the smaller one is the $40,000 loan for businesses which is really a temporary measure just to inject some cash, just to stay afloat. But the ones that are really making a significant impact is the wage subsidy and the rent subsidy. So in fact, what it's doing is it's, you know, depending on what, where your revenue is and where it was last year, the government is uh, subsidizing 75% of your rent and 75% of your wages and sometimes even more. So what this has created is an artificial bubble. And this is kind of from an, um, an account perspective, a businessman perspective, it worries me. Because what's happening right now is many clients in certain industries, retail industry, um, restaurant industry, are staying open, but aren't necessarily profitable. What's making them profitable is that they're getting 75% of their main costs reimbursed by the government. And this allows them to be cash positive, And in some cases, actually, on a cash flow basis, do better than they were doing before. They have more money now because their main expenses are being basically sponsored by the government. So if your sales didn't go down by 75% and 75% of your main fixed cost being rent and wages are being paid by the government, you may actually, on paper, look like you're doing a lot better and have more cash in your bank. So there's two problems with this. First problem is that people are becoming complacent thinking, this is great, I can just run like this forever. But the government will eventually run out of money or choose not to continue this because it's not a long-term strategy. And the second problem, which is a more immediate problem, is people think it's free money. Free money is when you don't have to give it back. This is not free money. This is a subsidy being given that is going to be taxable at some point, whether it's taxable in the taxation year that you received it and you add it onto your tax return or that it's taxable in the future. And there's going to be income taxes that are going to be subject to this income and people have to pay that. 
So what's going to happen is these people thinking, oh, I'm doing great. And then suddenly 75% of this expense that they they saved, it becomes taxable income. And if you're in a corporate environment, okay, it may not be so bad. It's 23%. But if you didn't incorporate it and you're a registered business, you could find yourself in a 53% tax bracket and have to pay back 53% of that 75% that you got. So this is the concern. As this COVID continues and goes on longer and longer and longer, how sustainable are the government uh, programs in place? And if they're not sustainable, then people need to start thinking about what they can do in their business using technology, leveraging it and so forth to make sure that when the program runs out or they're suddenly faced with having to reimburse a significant portion, they've already got an alternative strategy. This is where we help clients as well because we're outside of their business and we're able to look at it all and analyze their real margins and come back and say, do you really do you understand that you're actually losing money on every unit that you sell? This is not going to turn around quickly. Let's see what we can do to try to streamline your business or perhaps move you into a different market segment where you can have your employees trained and so forth. There are programs available for that so that when things go away, you're positioned to take advantage of the new market and grow with that. Uh, the worst thing people can do nowadays is stay complacent uh -huh. and just expect the status quo to stand around forever because it won't. And uh, if, you know, if you read the analysis, whether it's in the Globe and Mail or whether it's in different periodicals, um, we are not going to go back to the way things were, whether it's in the restaurant industry, whether it's in the entertainment industry, whether it's you know weddings, whatever. The norm is going to be a new norm, and we need to be sort of ahead of the curve to make sure that we're not left behind, because I see that over the next year or two years, the wealth disparity is just going to grow and grow and grow. And this is why, if you, if you pay attention to what the liberals are talking about, they're talking about a basic income uh, that they're going to, allocate to everybody. I think they're talking, they're throwing around a, a number of $2,000 a month. Well, what that does is it pretty much guarantees that everybody gets $24,000 a year, but it creates, again, a, a class of individuals who are now going to rely on that, and it would be very hard for them to step away from it because most of these programs, the way they're set up is you get it unless you make other income, but if you're making other income, you lose it. So it becomes a very vicious circle where it's very hard to get out once you become complacent with that. Yeah, I think uh, Mark, that's those are some like really great points there. And um, you know, I my my four year old son is super into dinosaurs, so we're constantly talking about the moment when the meteor hit the Earth, and there was this major climate disruption that then forced uh, adaptation and created a mass extinction. Um, it's a kind of a funny metaphor, but I think we're in a moment like that now, where things are not going to go back to the way they were before, and where all of us need to really be peddling to adapt to the new circumstances that are in front of us. And I think you also like point to a very a good aspect there, which is that, you know, in terms of the government aid that's been offered, there's a real risk of complacency and a real risk of a kind of a, a handout culture where as long as there's money in the bank, people might not be worried so much about adapting to new circumstances. So I think, I think that's a really good point. Um, I also think in terms of social disruptions going forward and the widening income gap between rich and poor. Obviously, this is something that's been on the agenda, let's say, for the last 15, 20 years. But I think now this is another moment where people who are sitting on top of the pyramid are really thinking, how can I turn this to my advantage? And they're making way more money than they were before. And the people who are sort of at the bottom are finding themselves lost in the shuffle. Um, and I'll just give you like one quick example to, to sort of illustrate what I mean. Um, I was contacted on LinkedIn the other day by uh, somebody who peddles virtual assistants. And they were basically proposing somebody who does bookkeeping for $5 an hour in Africa. And one of the things that's going to happen now that we've realized that we don't need an office, that we can do everything by Zoom, is that those clerical jobs that were done for 15, 20 bucks an hour here in an office somewhere, now there's basically no barrier to offshoring those. And I think that then brings us into the territory of this universal basic income where people are, you know, there's a certain group of people that's going to have a hard transition with whatever it's like when we wake up from this. You know, um, Terry, fantastic points. It really um, goes to the core of the issue that we're having here. 
Um, the idea of offshoring jobs, um, the idea of having a global economy, a global environment, it sounds nice, but there's so many inherent dangers. And you touch on a point of somebody having um, a virtual assistant. So I can remember uh, 10 years ago, I explored the idea of, for bookkeeping services that we do offer our clients, having an outside firm manage those services. So we would find somebody. At the time, India was booming. And um, they would do the work in India, and I think they were going to charge something ridiculous, like $10 an hour. We could charge you know, $30 an hour, and we could make the difference. The main issue I had, and the issue is even worse today, is how do you ensure the confidentiality of the information for your clients and ensure, assure that that information will not be sold to parties that could take advantage of it? I had such a problem with that, and even though I wanted to do this with this, this third-party company, it was inefficient because I put in place measures which didn't give maximum access to social insurance numbers, certain bank number information. So there was a whole setup required on my end to make sure everything stayed confidential, and then I had a server set up where they couldn't copy off the server and print. It, it, it ended up not working. We tried it out for a couple of months. It was just like, you know what? It's just a disaster. But it's something today that's extremely relevant. I don't know if your listeners have gotten these calls. I get it on my cell phone you know, every other day. Service Canada is calling me. There's a problem yeah. with my social yeah. How many money I owe? You're laughing because you know what I'm talking about. And what's happening is there's unscrupulous people that are taking advantage of people. Because when most people get a call and it has to do with taxes, the panic and the fear comes up right away and they want to make this go away so if the person calling with this scam is smart about it they can get a lot of information out of somebody and they can even get people to make payments oh it's cra calling and you owe uh, 65 dollars of an, un an unpaid uh, interest and you haven't paid and if you don't pay we're gonna basically uh you know do whatever but if you provide us a credit card number over the phone we'll be able to make that go away and send you a confirmation email so some people will say, well, you know what, for 65 bucks, whatever, here's my credit card. Next thing you know, your credit card's been charged for, you know, $20,000. And yes, you can go back to your credit card company and get it reversed, but your life becomes uh, upside down. Uh, one of the things in the U.S., for example, thank goodness we don't have it here, is identity fraud for the title of your home. This has become a huge issue in the U.S. where people basically acquire the title of your home virtually online and refinance it and sell your home and you suddenly wake up to a demand letter saying you know move out of your house it's been sold and you're like what just happened the canadian laws are very different and doesn't allow for that but what's happening now is as we're moving to this virtual world which is the point that you were raising there's a lot of positive with this so the positive would be if anybody's ever signed uh, at the bank uh, for a mortgage or gone to uh, get life insurance. It, the amount of paper these people would peddle is insane. You'd say, here we are in the modern world, in the 21st century, and you still require me to sign documents. Um, notaries, the same thing. You want to have a will done, you have to be there physically and do it. So what COVID did is it sped forward the transition period to get everything online. Instead of taking 10 years, it took two weeks. All of a sudden they said, okay, got it. That's it. You know, we can't meet anybody, so everything's going to go online. So you want to have a mortgage application field. You never actually show up anymore. You can use, you know, e-sign and so forth. Same thing for a notary. Same thing for life insurance. So there's positive things in that sense. At the same time, as we go to a fully virtual world, cashless society, which is another thing that's coming very soon. The government's already imposing that by creating um, the opportunity for businesses to say, well, due to COVID, we're not going to accept cash. It's risky and so forth. We need to realize there's an inherent danger when everything we have is virtual. Well, the possibility of fraud is virtual. And especially when you're dealing with individuals that you have trust in, and the account I've been told is one of those relationships that people share the most information with. You know, um, If your account is a virtual account located in some other country, what assurance do you have that that account is actually gonna do right by you and you're not gonna find yourself in a very, very bad situation? So we, for example, take great care not to allow any information that's, you know, private information of our clients out of our office. Um, we don't want our clients to find themselves with a scam and then to come back and say, hey, it came from your office. So it's one of the, it's one of the constraints in our business. Uh, but as the world moves more and more to a virtual world, we'll have to find ways through encryption technology and so forth to be able to maintain this privacy, yet move on with the world because... Uh, every profession is changing and accounting is changing too. 
And I think right now, from a tax perspective, the only thing that sort of ensures that people in Canada who work in tax will be from Canada is that it becomes very onerous to learn the tax laws of another country if you don't live there. But nevertheless, you know, some people um, see the services of an accountant, bookkeeper, and so forth as a commodity. And a commodity is how cheap can I get it? Five bucks, great, I'm going there. And then only later on realize, well, maybe that five bucks ended up costing me a hundred bucks an hour due to the, uh, the ramifications. Yeah, yeah, no, I think uh, that's definitely very true. And I think it's, we're, we're coming up against the adaptation question again. So we are faced with, you know, the pressure to put everything online and that then opens the doors to all kinds of fraudsters. Um, I was actually reading an article in The Economist that's talking about how internet and online fraud is just booming right now. So I think that's kind of an interesting detail, especially as we're talking about potentially offshoring sensitive data. Like that's definitely something to think about. Um, and if we just change gears again, so one of the things that I really used to enjoy, Mark, about uh, the the business networking that we did together is you always had such great pep talks for people, such mm -hmm. great advice, uh, tax related and not tax related. So as we are all, you know, in this moment that we are in right now, what advice would you give to people, let's say in a real estate sense, what should they be doing maybe mentally, maybe personally to um, deal with some of the, you know, feelings that come up with, with, with what's going on. Absolutely, Terry. I mean, it's something that, uh, you know, we always would look into. So this current situation, and again, it's dependent on the individuals, the individual working, not working, lots of free time, not so much free time, but the current situation can be seen with two, two sets of lenses, a crisis where you go into panic mode and you go into depressive mode. Or an opportunity, an opportunity to invest in something, an opportunity to start a new career or become more proficient in your own career, or an opportunity to streamline your own business and see what can you do to make your business more efficient. And this is kind of like I remember when we were part of that group, it's something I would always discuss. What can you as an individual do to make your day more efficient? And it could start with how you start your day, what do you start with, whether you start with emails or without emails, whether you um, you read certain books, whether you implement certain strategies and so forth. And what can you do within your business to make your business more efficient? So one of the things that right now um, this situation is forced upon us is how to become more technologically savvy. Um, the people who are unable to adopt, adopt, adapt to technology will very likely in the near future find themselves out of the, the picture. Whether they're notaries, accountants, lawyers, and so forth, somebody who's unable to use the technology available today to leverage their business is going to completely you know, be left behind because there's no other choice. So what I tell everybody is use this time to want to identify opportunities for business. So whether you know if you're, you have a traditional business and you're selling products, it's fine. And be aware of how the environment is changing around you. And I'll give you a little example about that. And I think we're all going to sort of realize that the world is going to move to that, that direction. So retail. Um, I don't know if your, your listeners have gone to the, uh, to the department store lately or the mall or whatever. Uh, buying in a, in a store, clothing or whatever, is becoming a more and more onerous uh, uh, activity. Uh, you have to walk. Well, you have to wear a mask. Great. Nobody likes to do that. Uh, you have to stand in line. Only two or three people are allowed in the store at a time. And you're realizing more and more that this is just becoming a real pain to have to go to the store to buy a suit or to buy a, you know, whatever you want to buy a shirt or whatever. The retailers, the ones who understood this early on, understood that by moving everything online, even if there were guaranteed refunds, buy whatever you want, buy 20 shirts, you don't like 19 of them, send them all back, free shipping one way, free shipping the other way, that will be the future. And for them, it's actually gonna be a very profitable future because what they've realized is those returns are insignificant compared to the cost savings in salaries and retail space. Right now, people are stuck in leases, right now businesses are sort of having to do with the physical retail space. And we didn't discuss this earlier, but uh, Montreal's landscape is going to completely change in the next year or two. The downtown core is already fundamentally changed because of this. And with all of the green policies the mayor is putting in place and all the changes, uh, with the parking situation and so forth, 
Montreal will not look like the Montreal of yesterday by next year. The retailers that have moved online are going to capitalize on this by having the technology in place to be able to continue to sell their products and probably end up with more money. The ones who didn't understand this are closing their doors. Right now, perhaps because of the wage subsidy and the rent subsidy they're managing, but they won't be able to manage because ultimately people are just not going to go to their stores and their stores are going to shut down. So the smart ones are looking right now and saying, okay, how can I create a loyal client base? Should I create loyalty cards? Uh, how can I capture the emails of these clients to keep them informed of specials to be able to survive in this new Amazon focused environment where everybody likes to just buy stuff online, have it delivered to your house, your place of business. You don't actually have to deal with the driving, the parking and so forth to go get something. And the best part is if you're not happy with it, just return it. Um, and I've noticed this more and more and more and in all businesses. So how will the accounting world look like in a year or two? I think it's going to be fundamentally changed already during this crisis. People don't come to my office to bring documents. We're doing everything virtually. And as the virtual documents and the systems for capturing it get more and more efficient, well, eventually the relationship will be a virtual relationship and we need to be set up to be able to capitalize on this. So every time we catch ourselves, a little down and a little bit like, oh my God, everything's coming to an end and we don't know what to do. Just take a breath, step back and look at what opportunity might be available. And this is something where, you know, if people are a member of a group, um, you can bounce ideas off each other because if everybody's looking for this together, you'll find ideas and everybody will be you know, better off because of it. Yeah, Marco, I think that's like really a great way to sort of bookend this interview. Um, you know, just a bit of a call to adaptation and a call to all of us maybe as we, you know, go about the rest of our afternoon to stop and think about the ways in which we can react and adapt proactively to what's going on. Um, and maybe also a call to a further interview, um, you know, to talk to somebody who knows about or has some ideas about which direction commercial real estate is going to be going. Because I think, as you say, one of the major changes is real estate, real, uh, sorry, retail space and office space. Because now that, you know, like, I don't think the office is going to die, but companies are going to be seriously downsizing their offices when they realize that most people can work from home three, four days a week. And I think yeah. if you're looking at disruptions in the real estate industry, that's going to be something major that's coming down the pipeline. Um, but so look, Mark, I wanted to thank you so much for the time that you took talking to us. I think by some of the comments, uh, we've got some very positive feedback and I think you've very professionally answered questions that a lot of people who are in real estate have. Um, so always a pleasure, Mark, and I, I want to thank you so much for being our guest today. My pleasure. And if you would like to share my uh, my phone number, my email address with any of your uh, listeners, it would be my pleasure to, you know, if you have specific situations that they'd like to address on a one on one, not make it public, it'd be my pleasure to meet with them and to see how I can help them. Sure. And just last thing, um, also, as this live remains on Facebook for a while, people are going to be able to post questions after the fact. So, Mark, if ever you feel like uh, responding to that, or maybe we could even transmit some of those questions to you if ever you have a couple of minutes to, to answer them. Some of that is going to appear over the next weeks as people watch the interview, not necessarily on live. Great. Absolutely. That'd be fine. Okay. So thanks again. And uh, to everybody else, have a good rest of a Tuesday. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone.